0: And uh, here we are, we're starting a new book of the Bible uh, again, and so we're in the book of Psalms. So if you uh, brought a Bible to church today, you can go ahead and point it to Psalms, whether that's um, by tapping on a screen or by flipping through a page, either way, we like Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, don't sweat it, we've got one provided for you in the pew ahead of you, and if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take that with you. Uh, we will be in Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. It's a new series that we're beginning uh, called Songs of Jesus. And uh, it's, you know, our intention with this series is to work through we, we like to work through books of the Bible. We like to go verse by verse. We feel like that drives the agenda. That, then I don't have to come up with cleverness to figure out what's going on in your life and how to address those problems because i got no idea. I mean, honestly, I'm, it's just fly by the seat of my pants most of the time. And so I just let the Bible kind of drive the narrative and show you where areas of your life where, you know, the Lord speaking to you and where you need to grow and how you can become more like Jesus and how you can work for his mission and his purpose So we work through books of the Bible and we're going to be working through the book of Psalms one at a time. It's going to take over three years if we did them consecutively. Um, So I'll see you guys in about 2020 when we finish. Um, No, we're not going to do all of the Psalms in this series. We are going to spend, by God's grace and Lord willing, we'll spend February in the book of Psalms and we're going to take on about four different Psalms in, in this and then we're going to keep coming back to this throughout the years. At least that's my hope and plan for this series. We've called it the Songs of Jesus for two reasons. One reason is uh, these are songs Jesus sang. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Jesus sang. I think it's Matthew 26 or something where the Bible says that Jesus led the disciples in singing. So Jesus sings which is wonderful. The Bible says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord rejoices over us with singing. We have a singing Savior. So this is songs of Jesus because these are songs that Jesus sang. So um, heaven will be a place of singing. I I mean, you know, some of you may sit down to that person in the pew, and they're like one of those singers during praise and worship, and they like they like ball out the words, and you're just like, you want to you do praise like this? You want to be like, okay, praise Jesus. Um, but listen, it's, it's, heaven is going to be a loud place with lots of singing. He, you read Revelation chapter five. There's just people singing. There's It's loud up there in heaven. So if praise music bothers you, you're going to have to get over that, okay? Because heaven's full of it, right? Uh, but it's... Uh, Anyway, uh, the other thing, the other reason that uh, we're calling this Songs of Jesus is because they're songs about Jesus. There's 150 different Psalms, and every last one of them is about Jesus in some way. And so we're calling this Songs of Jesus because they are songs about him. You know, Steve Joyce and I were talking before the service. The Psalms are such a wonderful place to hang out. It's like no matter where you are in life, whatever, if you're on a mountaintop or if you're in a valley, you can open up the Psalms and it's just a great place to be. There's just so much life. It's so relatable. Most of the Psalms start off with the Psalmist saying, help, my life is horrible. And then at the end of the Psalm, it's like, ah, and we all relate to that. We can relate to the crazy that's in the Psalms, okay? You, you, you read through the Psalms of just David. David sang most of the Psalms, a largest portion of them anyway. And you can read through David's Psalms and you see it's like the guy is on a mountain and then he crashes and then he's back on a mountain. Then he crashes. If he were alive today, we'd put him on medication Because it's like he's up, and then he's down, and then he's up, and then he's down. It's like, chill, brother. You you don't need to be up like this. You need to be right in here. You need to be kind of like wavy rather than just these big spikes. But that's why we relate to the Psalms. They're so raw. They're so visceral. They're so relatable for that reason. So this is what I love about the Psalms. Whenever you're reading in the Old Testament, in general, but the Psalms in particular, you feel something in every single word in the Old Testament. And that—that that is that there's, a lo- there's, a, there's an ache. There's a longing. There's something that's incomplete. There's something missing whenever you read through the Old Testament. You read through these Psalms. We're going to read through Psalm 16 in a minute. You read through these, and you, you feel there's an aching in these words. There's something unresolved. There's some, call it a tension or whatever. There's something that's, that's not quite there yet. And that aching in the Old Testament is for Jesus. And so here in the, in the New Testament, we can read back into these Psalms and we can see the point of the aching. We can see where the aching finds resolution. We can find where the missing piece finds its, its element, the thing it was looking for all along. When you read the Old Testament, it's a little bit like the way it works in my head. Anyway, is it's a little bit like if you bought one of those those puzzles with all the little pieces. I don't know, five thousand piece puzzle. Right? Anybody ever put together a five thousand piece puzzle before? Okay. Imagine you you took out that five thousand piece puzzle. Okay, it usually comes in a little box, and you and you just dumped it on the floor, and then you threw away the box, but, and you totally had no idea what what these pieces were. You had no clue, and you're just left. With all these tiny little pieces, and which one fits, you have no idea. And so you're just doing piecemeal and trying to figure out where they all fit together. And eventually, as every little piece finds its match and it's spread out before you, it's just a giant big picture of Jesus. And that's what the Old Testament does, is that it just puts together little pieces. Everybody gets a little little glimpse of Jesus, and they can't quite fit it where it needs to go. And then eventually, when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 1, it's... It's the picture. Jesus is the picture. And so when we read through the Psalms, you're going to find there's a tension here. There's, a, there's something missing, and it's all leaning toward Jesus. And so that's where we're going, and that's why we're calling it song, um, Songs of Jesus. So let's read Psalm 16 together. Then I'm going to pray, and we'll get to work verse by verse. Should be 45 minutes, okay, ish. Psalm 16, a miktam. Of David, that's best I can do. Mictum. I told you last week um, when we were in Habakkuk. Uh, I don't know a couple weeks ago when we were in Habakkuk. Those, those like that, that term, a mictum of David. We have no really idea what that means. We have no idea what mictum. It's it's some kind of musical term, and musicians, being what they are, they wrote down the definition, but then they I don't know put it in the back of the car and got messed up and then threw it all away. Nobody kept. Any, any record of what this is. So we have no idea what a miktam is, but that's not what's important. Here's what's important. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you pray? Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask you that you would send your spirit to illuminate these words. Allow us, Father, to see Jesus in Psalm 16. Your word says that he is the brightness of the image of God. And we ask, God, that you would shine the light of your glory on the face of your Son and allow us to see him. I pray against distraction and I pray against the enemy who would seek to distract us and I ask, Lord, that you would give us focus, that we would see Jesus and understand in this word how we can rejoice in the God who is man. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off with a summary. I think it would be good in, in a, I think I may do this every time we do a psalm, but I want to start off with a summary. I think it's helpful to kind of get a, a gist of what this is about. So if you, when you walked in, you got a program on the backside of your program, if you'd like to follow along with such things, just to kind of keep yourself awake, you can uh, follow along here on the backside of the program, and you can fill it out as we go along. This is the summary, as best as I can put it, of what this psalm is about. I think it helps to just get a general sense before you read it, and then uh, what I'm going to do is we'll go through this, and I'll lay this over this psalm, and then what you do, is as we move through the psalm verse by verse, you decide whether or not this statement makes sense as a, as a summary of this, this psalm. So here, here, here's, here's the best I can do. God is most glorified in the man who makes the Lord his highest good and deepest pleasure. He will fill his life with joy and purpose and security in delight. He'll do this in spite of circumstance or station or hardship. It's a mouthful, a little cumbersome, but I think that's what David is saying. that The man who puts his trust in the Lord, who makes the Lord his highest good and deepest pleasure, God is glorified in that man, and God will then give to that man uh, joy and purpose, security and delight, and those things will come to his life in spite of his circumstances and station or hardship in life. So so that's that's my summary. You have it in front of you. And now we're going to move through the verses and you see if that you see if that's right. Verse one preserve me, O God For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. On Tuesday evening, we had a thunderstorm. Because apparently Ohio forgot that it's February and decided to send a thunderstorm in the middle of winter. And my son, Ethan, who's two, was in the office all by himself when the first thunder hit, okay? And it was a decent one. It wasn't anything scary. There's been worse ones. But for him, it was terrifying. So I heard it, boom. And then I saw his two little legs come flying out of the office, running down the hallway, and he grabbed onto me. He was, he was doing, on Tuesday evening, Psalm sixteen one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He was taking refuge in his daddy. So King David has some calamity in his life, some fear, something he's afraid of. We're not exactly sure, although I think at the end we'll get a sense of it. And where does he turn? He turns to God. Preserve me, O God, for in, for in you I take refuge. And that sets the tone for the whole psalm. In fact, God being a refuge is a very common theme throughout many of the psalms. There's Psalm 9-9, which is a very famous one that says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And David says, I'll take refuge in the Lord because he'll preserve me. He'll take care of me. He'll guard me and protect me. He is a safe place. He is the safest place. Is God the safest place for you? Is, is God a refuge? Do you can, when, when calamity comes to your life, is he where you turn first? Or is there something else that you seek refuge Do you look at something outside of God to bring you comfort in a time of need? Or do you look to God? Or do you look to yourself? Do you look internally? King David looked to God and found refuge. And he says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God was King David's highest good. There was nothing good outside of God. And that's why King David t- turned to him, you are my highest good. There's no good outside of you that I can go to that will bring me refuge, will bring me comfort in my time of tragedy and crisis. I can look outside, but nothing else will bring me refuge. I could look inside, but that doesn't do either. So I turn to my God and he brings me refuge. He is safe. This is why, Cornerstone, we preach uh, what we call Christ centered sermons. Uh, That a lot of times when we do a sermon, you may have noticed this, we'll do a sermon, we'll do a whole sermon, 45 minutes long. There'll be almost no application, almost none. There'll be almost no pragmatism in my sermon at all 45 minutes it's no 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 there's no like step one step two step three equals happy life we almost avoid pragmatism on purpose in this psalm you'll find it doesn't give you a step one step two step three to find refuge in god it just says help i need help And this is by design the way we preach. It's by design because I believe that you don't need to see that God, you don't need pragmatism in order to find refuge in God. Let me put it like this. On Tuesday evening when there was a thunderstorm, my two-year-old is in the office all by himself. He hears the boom and his, his, his brain goes like this. What was that? Where's my dad? That's, that's basically the, the, how his brain synapse fired. <laughs> what was that? Where's my dad? So I believe all you need to do is know God, and, and the response to turn to him will be automatic. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And so sometimes when we preach, we just say, here's Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? And there's, there's no application. That's not to say we won't give you application. I think sometimes that's helpful. But I think for the most part, I don't, listen, I didn't have to sit down before Tuesday. It wasn't like on Monday over dinner. I sat down with my two-year-old and I said, Ethan, listen, I need to tell you something. If you you ever get scared, but I want you to know you can come to daddy. Daddy's safe. So if something happens that startles you, makes you scared, just just come to me. I'll, I'll take care of you. I didn't have to tell him that. He just knew. It's the same way with us. When we have crisis in our life, we turn to God. That should be the first place we go. That should be default mode in our mind. It was for David. There's no good in anything else. But but we don't always do that, do we? Why... Why, when crisis comes, do we look to other things? Why, when hardship comes and calamity comes, do we look to something else to bring us comfort and refuge? When a two-year-old knows to go to his daddy, why do we do the opposite? I think verse. the rest of this will help us. So let's keep reading. We'll come back to that question. As for the saints in the land, verse three says, "They are the excellent ones in whom is my delight." This is an intriguing verse to me. King David's resting in the security of God. He's at the feet of, of his God. He's praying, "Help me out! I'm, I'm in this terrible situation." And his mind at the at, at the at the feet of the Lord goes to the saints. He goes goes to other. Believers, other followers of the Lord. And there he finds camaraderie. You know, this is one of the uh, unforeseen wonders, I think, of becoming a Christian. Is that you get fellowship with other Christians. And it's a wonderful thing. It is a delightful thing. A most necessary thing. That's why we often refer to the church as a faith family. That's what Ephesians 2 says. I sometimes hear, you may have heard this before, but sometimes as a pastor, I'll hear people say, Christians will come to me and they'll say, you know, pastor, I I like Jesus. I just don't like the followers of Jesus. You ever heard that before? Can I be honest with you? That troubles me. That deeply troubles me. Because here's here's what doesn't make sense to me. How is it that you don't enjoy being around people whose deepest joy is the same as your deepest joy? Why do you struggle with being around someone for whom... God is their greatest pleasure, and he's your greatest pleasure, but you don't like being around them. That doesn't doesn't work in my head. And so my question is to that person often, you you say you don't like being around Christians. Have you ever met one? (laughs) Like a real one. Not like a pew sitter, a Christian a person who would give their entire life to lay down to give up everything to serve Jesus and his mission that's wonderful and contagious and great to be around my other question is maybe you aren't one so david says i find delight in being around other people for whom God is their highest delight. There's camaraderie at the feet of the cross. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Or take their name on my lips. David finds God so massively satisfying that just the thought of turning to other gods makes no sense at all to him. He will not give himself to seek after another God. In fact, he goes on to say, I won't even take their name on my lips. I won't even take their name on my lips. When you seek refuge, well, let me say it this way: seeking refuge in any god other than the Almighty God will only multiply your sorrows. So, when you have crisis and you turn to something else other than Jesus, you're just making your situation worse. You may have sorrow for great loss, but that sorrow is being multiplied when you seek refuge in something other than God. Isn't that what verse 4 says? Those who seek refuge in another God shall multiply their sorrows. And so David says, I won't, even, I won't pour out an offering to another God. I won't seek another God. I will only seek the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I won't even take their name on my lips. So in crisis, we can't look to ourselves to deliver ourselves. Most of the time, you know it's true, most of the time you're in crisis because you put yourself in there in the first place. And so isn't it ridiculous that we would find and believe the notion that because we put ourselves in a crisis, that we can get ourselves out of the crisis that we put ourselves into? When you're in a hole, you need someone to get you out. You can't dig your way out of a hole. It's not how it works. You're going the wrong way. You need someone to get you out. You can't turn to others. Many times we turn to our spouse in times of crisis. Which is okay, so long as your spouse is not the source of refuge. They were never meant to be that for you. And you'll find they disappoint. You'll find that alcohol disappoints. You'll find that prescription medication disappoints. You'll find that any, anything else other than the Lord will only multiply the sorrow that you have. So when you encounter crisis, You must do everything that you possibly can to resist every urge to turn to anything other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do what my two-year-old did and just run to your daddy. Let your little legs carry you to daddy in crisis. And you just hold on with all your might and let the thunderstorm come because he got you. It's going to be all right. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is the centerpiece of the psalm. I told you a couple of weeks ago, a lot of times Hebrew, Hebrew poetry and Hebrew prose, it, it, it follows a chiastic structure. You guys remember that, okay? Um, if you remember that, it means that uh, imagine like an arrow, okay? So imagine that the psalm is structured like an arrow with points along the, the edges of the arrow, and then the middle is often the main point. And that's the point here in Psalm sixteen two. This is the main point of this psalm, and it kind of works its way back outward as it goes along. So this is the main point. This is the, sh- this is the tip of the arrow. W- what is holding David together during this time of crisis? He says, here, the Lord is my portion and the Lord is my cup. He's, he's what I choose. Everything else laid before me, all other deliverers laid before me, the one I choose is the Lord. He's my portion. He's what I want out of life. He's the thing that means most to me. My portion. My cup. The apostle, the great apostle Paul says this in the New Testament. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing else matters. The Lord is my portion. Earlier in that wonderful book, the apostle says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what that, that's what David is saying here. The Lord is my portion and my cup. Whatever comes, let whatever come, come. I have the Lord. I have everything. You can take everything away from me, but I have the Lord. Therefore, you can't take anything away from me. The Lord is my portion. Then he says... You hold my lot, and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You hold my lot, and the lines, lines and lots. What, what does this lines and lots mean? He's talking about the outcome of his life. He's talking about his station. He's talking about what the Lord has given, the life that he has has been given to him by the Lord. The lines are boundary lines around his life. He's, he's taking inventory, sort of like the middle-aged guy does before he buys the red sports car. He takes inventory of his life and he thinks, there's got to be more than just nine to five And kids who can't stand me, there's got to be something more than this life that I've made. David's sort of in that place, and he's he's saying, the Lord is my portion. And because the Lord is my portion, the boundary lines of my life, even though when I was 20, I thought they would be bigger. Even though when I was 20, I thought they would be grander and more people would be shouting my name. Even though I thought I might be on a stage and lots of people would be listening to me play guitar. Even though that's not it, I look at my life, the boundary line of my life, my pleasant, these are pleasant to me because in the middle is God. He's my poor, He's my portion. I have him, therefore my life is good. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That phrase, pleasant places, is the same word that appears at the end of the psalm where he says he has pleasures forevermore. So it could be talking real estate but i think he means more than that i think he means the whole of his life some of us i'm included in this we're quick to despair slow to joy quick to despair that's that might be as well be an epitaph for me slow to joy but he's quick to despair not too quick on the draw, but he's certainly quick to despair. In a crisis, we go right to failure mode. You know, one or two things, ten things. They just pile up, and all of a sudden, the walls come crumbling down. And the reason, we've chosen the wrong portion. We're drinking the wrong cup. We're looking to the wrong refuge. David says, The Lord is my portion. The, my lot is wonderful. You have chosen this thing for me, this life that I have. It was given to me by you. It's pleasant. Mind you, he's saying this in the middle of a crisis. Remember, he starts off with saying, Help, I'm lost, preserve me. And he's saying, the lines you've drawn around my life are wonderful. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. When we choose God as our highest good and our deepest pleasure, when, when he's our chosen portion, our cup, Cornerstone, you can manage any difficulty. You can face head-on the worst crisis You can hear the worst news, the sort of news that just sucks the air out of a room, stops you in your tracks, causes your heartbeat to change. That kind of news. Because you know what David knew. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will always be there for you. You will always be in his hand. He is your portion and they can take everything else. Everything else can fall and break down and get destroyed. But the Lord is your portion and he will never let you go. And so circumstance can't change. The fact that God is unchangeable. And your circumstance and your station in life won't affect the stability of your faith. Because the Lord is your portion. It doesn't mean he's going to take trouble away. He's not going to take your troubles away. Quite the opposite, actually. God uses the trouble to bring us to him. And so David says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And David seeks refuge in God because God is His highest good. And then he finds counsel. Then the Lord gives him counsel. So he points his life towards the Lord, knowing that so long as God is with him, he can take on anything. When th- when thunder hit our house on Tuesday evening, Ethan ran to mommy and daddy because he knew that's a safe place to go. He didn't have to figure out what was going on. That might come later. First priority, where's my daddy? He'll figure this out. Is it starting to make sense to you why Jesus said we got to come to him with faith like a child? Kids just know these things. But when crisis comes to us as adults, we We think we're really smart. And we rationalize. And we probe with questions. And we wonder. And it leads us to despair. Where what we should do is go straight to the feet of the Lord, grab on as hard as we can, and wait. Daddy will know what to do. Then he got counsel. It was then It was after he turned to the Lord. Jesus made us this promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In the night, isn't it the nighttime always that bothers us the most? Isn't it? When you're going through hardship, you're unemployed, you're hurt, whatever it is, you're laid up. Something's got you down, some crisis, some sickness. Somebody got you upset. It's always that night, bugger that night, Night nighttime. And your brain's just running and you just can't sleep. And David says, I'm going to cling to the Lord. He'll give me counsel. And in the night, my own heart will instruct me. God, the Holy Spirit will help you, instruct you. You just got to go to the Lord and grab hold. And say, Daddy, save me. I don't know what to do. And then you'll get counsel. Don't waste the crisis. Don't waste it. Let God the Holy Spirit create in you a, a pattern of clinging to the Lord every time there's something bad. Of going and leaning into God every time there's some, something startles you. Let the crisis, the crisis which, by the way, you hold my lot, the the sovereign Lord of the universe allowed into your life, that crisis. Let that thing expose parts of you that you. you, Let it expose the parts of your heart which tend to turn to something outside of God. And then say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And repent for that thing. And then turn to the Lord. Don't waste a crisis. Round and third, headed for home. Verse nine. Verse nine. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. There's a bit that that word therefore is a big word. It's a very important word. It's a it's a because. So because of this, then this. So we go backwards a little bit in order to understand what the therefore is there for. So we say because you have set. Because you were before me, because I've set you before me, because you give me counsel, because you are my portion, because I'm not going to serve other gods, because I have no good apart from you, because you are my refuge, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Therefore I am secure. Whatever problem this king had, he knows that he's safe because he's with the Lord. And the Lord is safe so long as Jesus is in the boat, it ain't gonna sink. Heard that before? You know, you know, that's in reference. Whenever, pe- whenever preachers say that, they always say, whenever Jesus is in the boat, it's not gonna sink. That's in reference to that passage in the Gospels where, you know, the disciples are either in a boat and there's a bad storm. And these are fishermen, professional fishermen. You don't think they knew a bad storm when they saw one? These guys fished for living. So they, they've been in a boat before. They knew what they were doing. You put me on a boat, and even the smallest storm, and I'm terrified. But these guys, they lived on boats. They know. And I love Mark's account. Mark's account says that Jesus was asleep on a pillow. I just like that detail. He just got himself a little pillow, and he's, you don't think he knew the star- storm was coming, but it, he fell asleep anyway. It didn't, it didn't make any difference. The God of the universe is totally safe in the middle of a storm in Galilee. The safest place for those disciples was in that boat because Jesus was in that boat. The same thing for us. In a crisis, the safest place for you to be is with your God in his holy word. That's where you will find refuge. That's where you find safety. Therefore, God knew, or David knew God was the safest place. And so he says, "Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, now that's uh that word sheol is uh it's a word for the grave. It doesn't mean hell, it means like the place of the dead. And so David says, "My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh is secure." Because you will not abandon me to death, to the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to that place. You're going to save me in life. You're going to save me in death. He's not saying, I'm not going to die. David knew he was going to die, right? But he's saying he, he's, he's rejoicing. His flesh is secure because he knows that even when he does die, God will not abandon his soul to the place of the dead. That's what he's saying. And I think verse 10 exposes what the king is afraid of. He, he, see if you can follow. This is what I think he, he's saying here. He's not afraid to die. He's afraid of God abandoning him in death. So he's not afraid that he would die. He's afraid, see, his whole life, go back to the psalm, his whole life is about rejoicing in the Lord. The Lord is my portion. He's my pleasure. He's the highest good. Everything comes from him. It's all delight in you. I love my life. I don't want to go to a place where I can't delight in you. Don't abandon me or to a place where it, while I'm dead, I can't delight in you. I delight in you when I'm alive. I want to make sure I can still delight in you when I'm dead. Don't, don't abandon me to death. And so he's, he's saying, my heart is glad and, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh is secure because you won't abandon me there. You'll be with me. And I can still delight in you. That's why I think he's saying But what's the basis? What is the basis for him to say such a thing? How would he have any idea about anything in Sheol, the place of the dead? Had anyone been there and explained to him this is what's down there, this is what to expect, here's how to get your paperwork in order? Nobody had explained Sheol to him before. How did he have any confidence? How could he allow himself to rejoice? How could he allow his flesh to feel secure because God would not abandon him in Sheol, in in the place of the dead? And the answer to that is in the next clause For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is astonishing. This phrase, or oh, let your holy one see corruption, is just amazing. I hope you're ready for this. It tucked away there in verse 10. There's something beautiful in here. The apostle Peter picked it up in Acts chapter 2, and the apostle Paul picked it up at the end of Acts somewhere. And they figured out what David was saying here at the end of Psalm 16 when he said, you will not let your holy one see corruption. If you have an NIV Bible, it has holy one capitalized. Anyone know why that is? Because the Holy One that David is speaking of is Jesus. That's what the Apostle Peter picked up on and that's what the Apostle Paul picked up on. The reason King David could have confidence and rejoice and let his flesh be secure. Even though he knew he was going to die, he knew that even in the place of death, I still get to enjoy you because your Holy One will not see corruption. Because Jesus came into the world and he died and they put him in a grave and he got out of that grave. He didn't see corruption and therefore he he beat death and death didn't have any power over David, and death didn't have any power over you. And therefore, his flesh was secure. Somehow, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David just looked down through the corridor of time, and he saw that God put on flesh, that God became a man, Jesus Christ. He lived sinless before the Lord, and he went to the cross, and on that cross... God took King David's sins, his acts of disobedience. He took Pastor Jamie's sins and acts of disobedience. He took your sins and he placed them on Jesus. And when Jesus died, sin died. And when Jesus died, they took him off of the cross and they put him in a grave, a tomb. And three days later, he came up out of that tomb. Showing two things, that he had the power over sin, that sin was destroyed the effects of sin, which is death, were also destroyed. Death itself died. And so if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, death has no power over you either. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live, I get Jesus. If I die, I get Jesus. That's a win. For me to die is gain. This is how Jesus spoke of life and death. You guys can come back. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I don't want to die. I want to live. And I hope you do too. Stand to your feet. At the end of service, what we like to do is a couple of things. We're going to sing another song. And while we sing this song, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to talk to God. I'm going to ask you to communicate with the Almighty God of the universe. The Bible says that when you speak to Him, He listens. And if at any point during Psalm 16, as we've read it, and we're going to read the last verse here in a second. If at any point during that, those words, hearing those words... You felt like, I've been putting hope in something else. I've been looking for some other kind of refuge in my life. That's called conviction. And the Bible says that if you put your faith in the Lord, in in God, in Jesus, if you confess those wrongs, confess those sins, just admit it, he's faithful enough, he'll forgive you of those sins. And just like Jesus said, you can die but not die. That even though he die, he will live. And so I want to give you an opportunity here at the end of the service to just pray to the Lord, to repent for any sin and to make yourself right before the Lord. If you've never put your faith in the Lord, if this is the first time you've ever trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you let me know afterwards? And I'll pray with you. But we're going to sing another song. And while they get started, I'm going to read to you verse 11. and give you the opportunity to reflect on these words and repent. And I'm going to come back up and declare over you that if you put your faith in the Lord, you are saved. If you have confessed your sins, they are forgiven. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore this is the path of life and I pray that you would draw near to the Lord and find these pleasures as I do